High Lifeline Canada is a nonprofit organization that runs over 25 year round programs supporting families dealing with serious pediatric illness. They accept a variety of donations, one being hair donations. Hair is more than just a style statement. It shields you from the elements and gives you that boost of confidence that makes you feel amazing. But unfortunately, not everyone gets to enjoy that luxury. That's where High Lifeline Canada comes in. More than 1,500 donations so far this year. 500 of them from walk-ins to their office. That hair is then transformed into wigs for children and adults battling cancer. Imagine the impact. Restoring confidence, helping them be themselves once again. If your hair is 10 inches or longer, you have the power to create a ripple of change. Head over to HighLifelineCanada.org and discover how your hair donation can truly make a difference. Welcome to On Air with Chai, a podcast that inspires, brings hope, shows resilience and strength. I think anxiety has been increasing over recent decades because of the way we live. <laughs> I think, you know, we live in urbanized settings, we're increasingly socially isolated. Uh, we live a lot in this hybrid world, particularly young people, uh, where they're evaluated every day. Um, I think they're more exposed to adverse events that we maybe find harder to monitor. So bullying being one example, or exploitation, or online abuse. Hi everyone, in today's episode of On Air with Chai, we get to talk with Dr. Louise Gallagher, who is the Chief of the Child and Youth Mental Health Collaborative at Sick Kids Hospital. In our discussion today, we covered topics ranging from anxiety, eating disorders, mental health during COVID, as well as what the Child and Youth Mental Health Collaborative is, and how they are looking to change how mental health is looked at and treated in hospitals by all doctors. Enjoy. Everybody, and welcome to another episode of On Air with Chai. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Strasberg, and as always, joined by my amazing co-host, Morty Rothman. Hello. And today, our guest originally hails from Ireland, but now lives in Toronto. Uh, her experience and dedication to the world of pediatric psychiatry and child and youth mental health is very extensive. So she is now the chair of an adolescent psychiatry in Trinity College, Dublin, and a consultant child psychiatrist in Children's Health Ireland, I hope I pronounced this right, at Talat University Hospital. Um, she's now the chief in Department of Psychiatry and a chief in the Child and Youth Mental Health Collaborative at Sick Kids Hospital here in Toronto, where she works in collaboration with the Center of Addiction and Mental Health, also known as CAMH, as their chief in the Child and Youth Division with the University of Toronto as their director of the Division of Child and Youth Mental Health, as well as the Department of Psychiatry. She was also appointed a professor at Temerty Faculty of Medicine, and she has started all these positions in mid-July 2022. That is quite the resume and a mouthful. How do you keep up with that? Um, well, thank you for the kind introduction. Um, so, yeah, it, do, it, it it sounds like a very big role, and indeed it is, because it spans all those different organizations. But I think the critical thing about the role is to try to integrate some of the activities across those different settings. So the broad kind of remit is around clinical care, education and research. Um, so obviously at the kids in CAMH, we have a lot of um, commitment to clinical services. Um, we also educate students and uh, we, are, we are engaged in research in child and youth mental health. Um, in the division of um, child and youth mental health at the University of Toronto, we have about 13 or maybe 14 now clinical sites who provide um, clinical services across the greater Toronto area. 
um, and they also provide educational placements for our trainees in our, our residents in course psychiatry and in child and adolescent uh, mental health. Um, and they're also involved in research too. So, um, yeah, so we have this very big network of clinical services that are related through the division of child and youth mental health at the University of Toronto. It's a lot of people you're overseeing and working together and collaborating on common goal there. Yeah, I don't like to use the term overseeing because uh, it sounds very hierarchical. I mean, I do have the role as, as chief at the kids in CAMH, but I like to see the role as being something that is a leadership role that is promoting partnership and collaboration. Um, because I think people are, you know, they're doing great jobs delivering the services and really what we want to think about, I guess, for the coming period of time is how to develop um, partnerships and collaborations uh, to improve child and youth mental health uh, and the service provision. Could you tell us um, kind of your career path, how you came to where you are today, if you don't mind? Start from the beginning, where you know okay. where you grew up and in, in where and and how did you come oh, to like to go, go home to when I was born? Go back to when I was born. If, if you're willing yeah. to, as far back as you're willing to go, we want to hear. We want to hear uh, the story um, of how. Absolutely delighted to. Yeah, um, because I do. I think the older you get, the more you sort of think back on your life. So I definitely think that my um, my experience uh, going to school in childhood in Ireland in the 1970s probably prepared me to become a child psychiatrist. Um, I, you know, in those days, there was it was quite a punitive system. There was a lot of corporal punishment, and um, I would have, I suppose seen a lot of kids, you know, being sort of punished, you know, uh, quite significantly, maybe for having learning difficulties. And that always really stayed with me and it made a big impression on me. And um, I um, always wanted to be, um, I always wanted to be like something to do with the brain for some reason. I don't know why. I always attribute that to the fact that my grandmother uh, developed Alzheimer's when I was a child and I used to spend a lot of time with her. And um, on the one hand, why uh, and people who cared for a loved one with Alzheimer's will will kind of know this, but it can be really frustrating to live with somebody with Alzheimer's or to spend a lot of time with them because they can become very repetitive and they go over like memories from the past. And and um, and actually, for people with Alzheimer's, that can be a really comforting thing to do because they're the memories that are safe. Um, because they can't remember maybe what they did five minutes ago, but they can remember things that happened to them in their childhood. So I, I think that that always made an impression on me in, in the sense of wanting to do something brain related when I grew up. But I think definitely my experience of, of childhood and the way children were treated in the education system at that time in the 70s probably steered me more towards child and adolescent psychiatry because I felt that you know, those things just have such a big impact on children and young people. Um, and I actually ended up, uh, so I went uh, I went to University College Dublin. I did uh, study medicine. Um, I then joined, uh, I, I studied psychiatry in St. Patrick's Hospital in Dublin, which was founded by Jonathan Swift, who wrote Gulliver's Travels. And he, he had terrible mental health himself, but he founded uh, it for the idiots and lunatics of Dublin in the 1700s. Wow. And the idea was, yeah, because in those days, like if you had social needs, you basically went to prison. 
And so, you know, like there's a very famous jail in Dublin called Kilmainham Jail, and there would be 12 year olds in the in the prison. Basically, maybe they were stealing because they were starving. Um, so he saw that there was a big need for people who had mental illness and he founded this hospital. One of the first, you know, the Bethlehem and Maudsley was probably the oldest in the world, but St. Patrick's was a, was a, you know, was a pretty much at the vanguard of the development of that type of care for people. So I was lucky enough to do my training there. But within our catchment area was the school where I had attended when I was a kid. Uh, so I ended up being the child psychiatrist for my own school. Wow. And it was, yeah, it was really impactful for me, I think, to go back to that school many years later as a child psychiatrist. And But anyway, so fast forward, I, I started to train. Uh, I met a, a, a professor of psychiatry, Michael Gill, who was late, later became my, my mentor. And I really was interested in genetics and I was interested in autism, which is a condition that affects how how people interact with each other and how they use language and um, and how they behave. And uh, I, I was fortunate enough to get a research fellowship with the Wellcome Trust to study this. And that started my my sort of academic career. You mentioned a mentor, right? And, and one of the things that we're always looking for in, in this um, in this podcast is is how to make this kind of relevant for the every person. Um, so as you're going through your career and you come across a, I guess he must have been, an, was it an older professor? Was he? Yeah, he, he, he wasn't that much older than me. Uh, he's just retired. <laughs> so I, I don't think of him as being an older professor necessarily because, you know, when, when I met him, I, he was probably only in his 40s. But uh, he was very encouraging for people to, he, was, he had come back from the Institute of Psychiatry in London and he really wanted to grow academic psychiatry in Ireland. Um, and he really encouraged me and a number of other uh, physicians to take on academic careers. And um, and he really built up a very exciting group at the time. We were all involved in psychiatric genetics research, which would have been something that was very growing a lot in the 1990s. And that might be relevant to people because everybody knows uh, or everybody will will talk about you know mental illness running in families, and we know that it does for some people, and and that's why psychiatric genetics research came so fashionable at the time that we wanted to understand whether genetic factors that were contributing. But of course, we know that it's not just genetic factors. No, but that's so interesting yeah. to me that he would he would kind of he would come back and and decide this is something he wants to do, and the way to um, I guess create more. Uh, interest in research was to build other people up and, and to help other people and support them. And, and oh, very much I think that so. that's, uh, that's yeah. a very interesting um, way that he went about it. And uh, so, sorry, go um, go on. You, you were saying with uh, regarding your story. Um, yeah, so actually it was through autism genomics research that I met a number of researchers in Canada, uh, particularly Peter Zatmari, who was the former chief of the Child Abuse Mental Health Collaborative. And um, and Dr. Steve Shearer, who's um, uh, the director of research and, and a senior scientist at the Sick Kids Research Institute. So we had a very, very big sort of global uh, autism genomics consortium uh, that ran for maybe, I suppose, close to 10 years. And I really came to know a lot of the Canadian researchers very well and, and kind of had some collaborations then that, that, that started the connections, really. Um, and again, I think uh, as a, as mentors go, I think that Peter Zatmari really deserves to be noted um, in the field of child psychiatry research because he's a 
he, he's a really, really well-known researcher all over the world, and he's mentored many people in 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 Toronto, in Hamilton, uh, where he was before, and and all over the world. So uh, our our community is small, but but it's it's very interconnected. Uh, that's like the medical field is very small and like it's a huge field, but it's like interdisciplinary. It's very small. A lot everybody knows everybody, and the collaborations worldwide are incredible. When you are collaborating with other departments, are you collaborating a lot with Insect Kids itself? Yeah. So in Sick Kids, we've got um, uh, some interesting um, uh, things on the go that you might be interested in. So um, about two years ago, there was a um, uh, a, a mental health strategy devised for the hospital. So as far as I know, I, I stand to be corrected, but this could be the first time that a pediatric hospital ever had a mental health strategy. Um, and so shortly after the strategy was funded, um, there was a very large philanthropic gift given to the hospital to support the implementation of the strategy. So um, that's a cross-hospital strategy with a lot of uh, pediatricians, allied health professionals, psychiatrists, um, management, IT experts collaborating about around the various aspects of the strategy to encourage um, the, you know, everything from using measurement-based care where we measure symptoms in children and youth who attend the hospital to uh, advocacy to building new clinical pathways um, to education. So it's a really broad strategy. I'd be happy to talk about parts of it in detail, but it's highly collaborative and highly. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious the if you can give kind of like a bird's eye view of the strategy um, that Sakela is trying to implement on that front. And I think it's probably a, if, if you look at it from a perspective of um, kind of takeaways for people to to be able to perhaps somehow implement. So should, yeah, the education part definitely. I think people can absolutely use some of that with what's going on these days and recovering with COVID problems and um, a lot of the mental health issues that surrounded that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so I think the, the purpose of the strategy is to, um, um, it, I mean, it, does, it, it has more of a hospital focus in the sense that it is about kind of looking at mental health and physical health as being highly highly related to each other and um there was work done at sick kids a number of years ago that demonstrated that if you've got both a physical health problem and a mental health problem you're more likely to need more interventions to stay longer in hospital and be an overall sort of um high user of of health services so you know it means that people who who've got there's those combined uh, difficulties or health challenges, um, you know, are probably not doing so well or, or um, responding as well to the treatments and the interventions that they're getting for their physical health problems. So I think the thinking behind the strategy was to look at this in a more integrated way. So how do we ensure that all children who attend the hospital have their mental health screened as much as their physical health screened? Um, so there are different pillars to the strategy to look at the different aspects of this. So there's a clinical care pillar, and that's about um, developing something called measurement-based care, which means that every child and young person who comes to the hospital would have their mental health screen. So they, they would fill in some 
uh, questionnaires about their mental health and then the clinician who's treating them would would know what to do in relation to that do they you know do they if they if they're having some mental health challenges do they need to be a psychologist or some other mental health professional in the hospital for example and this is something that we call measurement based care um, we're also building integrated care pathways. So there's, uh, this is part of the care pillar. Uh, so this is where, you know, some mental health problems can present with a lot of physical health difficulties. And that can be problematic because if the physician, if um, a medical physician, not a, not a psychiatrist, is seeing somebody um, with this kind of condition, they might, they might just keep investigating them and that can kind of reinforce the problem uh, so if somebody has a health anxiety for example and they keep going to have scopes or scans or x-rays ultimately that's counterproductive it doesn't help the person um, and so we're building a pathway to try to identify people with those kinds of needs early in their hospital journey so that behavioral health can be brought into the care pathway um, uh, where our research pillar is trying to make research in mental health um, better integrated across the hospital. The education you mentioned was was of interest. So the education pillar at the moment they're build uh, they're building a curriculum to educate all the staff in the hospital about mental health, so that everybody feels comfortable in having conversations about mental health, um, and also supporting the implementation of some of the changes in the care pillars. And then finally, there's an, um, there's a co-creation, um, pillar, which is about bringing children and their advocates into, uh, the development of these new services and initiatives so that their voices are embedded right from the get-go. And then finally, we have an advocacy and system pillar, which is really about looking at the broader system and seeing how we can impact that broader system. Okay. So they're actually taking a much more holistic approach to body-mind. Health. Very much so. Yeah, very much so. I'm thinking about it in a much more integrated way. It's so interesting because you'd think it would be so obvious to people, I right. guess. But um, it's it's something that doesn't generally happen in hospitals where you have that body mind connection and everyone's kind of looking at the person as a whole instead of, oh, well, you're dealing with this illness, so we're just going to concentrate on that illness. With the clients that we deal with at High Life, a lot of them, a lot of them are chronic or terminally ill patients, a lot of kids. So we're dealing with a lot of cancers. So what you just said kind of goes hand in hand with what I wanted to ask next. With young kids, we have like a lot of young kids, like they range from like newborns to um, they age out at what, 18, 16? 19. 19, they age out, so have our program. So between there, these kids come in with cancers, they're very young, they don't understand fully what's going on. So I wanted, I was curious as to how with the mental health aspect of it, how do you guys treat that? How do you approach those situations? Well, yeah, I, and I think that this is something that we struggle with because the resources are just not universally available. I, I think, first of all, maybe what you one thing that you said there, Brian, is really important is that sometimes you go to hospital and they just treat the specific thing that's wrong with you. And I think that this is a phenomenon that's happened in, in medicine and healthcare over maybe 20, 30, 40 years, you know, that, I mean, when I was growing up as a child, my family doctor delivered me. He went to the nursing home to deliver me. He got out of his bed and went in. And 
when I was sick as a child, he came to my house and he looked down my throat and he prescribed me medication. I remember my mum being really sick and him coming to the house to see her. But but family doctors don't have the capacity to do that kind of holistic care anymore. And things have got super specialised. So now we've got like the heart doctor, the kidney doctor. We might even have, you know, doctors who are even more specialised than that. So I think that we lose something in the process. Um, and it is kind of putting the person at the centre of care and thinking about all their needs. And now there's a movement in healthcare to think about people in a more integrated way. And so say for the example that you give of the child with cancer. So um, I can't speak with great authority, but I know that there's a really good cancer programme at the kids and they have really done a huge amount of work. I think through philanthropy, through research grants, to build a whole a holistic type of program around those children that includes kind of thinking about their psychological and their behavioural health. So, you know, not every child with cancer needs to see a psychiatrist. In fact, many of them don't need to see a psychiatrist, but they might need to see somebody who can help them with their behaviour or to help them with their adjustment to their illness or help them with maybe the trauma that they experience, uh, you know, from the treatment for their illness, which sometimes can be very invasive, especially for young children. So there are lots of behavioural and psychological health needs that children and young people can have when they're, particularly with chronic or severe illnesses, when they're needing to go to hospital a lot. And I think a lot of support. Uh, one thing parents really struggle with is like, when to say no, right? You, when, when, you ha- when you're dealing with a sick child, like, how do you say no? How do you, when's, when's a good time to say yes? Um, I know you, you probably have so much more to say on this. I want to ask you though, and, and, and excuse my, excuse my ignorance for doctors coming up the ranks currently in the medical system. I'm sure that they're talking to doctors, you know, a heart doctor about the mental health of a patient as well. I'm sure that's all part of the discussion. Um, but would you, would you want to see any changes happen? at that level before they even get to dealing with patients? Um, I'm just going to comment on the first thing that you said there, Morshi, because I think it's really important that it was actually what I was going to say, which was that parents often need a lot of support around parenting in these situations because it's really hard to parent a sick child, right? You know, like, are the boundaries still the same? Should they still go to bed at 7 or 8 o'clock in the evening? You know, uh, so and uh, or when is it okay to to sort of change a boundary or to make an exception? I think those are really hard decisions that parents have to make in these situations. Of why they could really benefit from some practical kind of psychological support. Um, in terms of uh, medical education, though, that's a really good question too. And and um, I think we have to we we have to educate our young doctors, our trainee doctors, in in, in medical school. Uh, to think about patients in an integrated way. And we try to do that in the curriculums that are developed, in the curricula that are developed. But of course, they're constantly needing revision and updating. And the more complex medicine gets, the more packed their curricula gets, and the harder it can be to sort of look at things in an integrated way. At Trinity, where I worked before, um, I was involved very uh, in a lot of undergraduate teaching and and. Um, Trinity had a history of, of embedding psychiatry and behavioral health into medical education over the whole program. Our program is an undergraduate program. So the students come in from school and they train for five years. And we teach them in every year of the curricula. We used to teach them 
you know, behavior sciences, neuroscience, communication skills, um, as well as psychiatry and even professional skills. So, so we really sort of had our hands on the undergraduate medical student right from an early stage. And then when they were examined in their final med exam, they had a one in three chance of having a psychiatry case as their major case. So when doctors are going to do their exams, they have to go in and see a patient in the bed and examine the patient. And so one out of three of those patients for the medical finals might be a psychiatric patient, because, of course, we know that psychiatric patients can have really significant health problems. So not only would they have to take the psychiatric history, they'd also have to do the physical exam, the chest exam, um, maybe a musculoskeletal exam. Um, you know, to look holistically at the patient. And I, I really liked that system, but I think the challenge in continuing that system tends to be the fact that we have to teach so much to the medical students. I think talking about doctors who've then graduated or are in training, I think we're doing a lot more these days uh, in trying to teach them about behavioural health, mental health and psychiatry. Um, so we have a proposal at the moment to bring um, pediatric or pediatric trainees uh, into psychiatry for a month a year, which we hope to be able to facilitate for next year, um, a month during their training, I should say, um, which we hope will be facilitated next year. And we also facilitate lots of electives. So you get some of that kind of cross-fertilization. You know, High Lifeline, you know, part of our whole job, and I was describing a little bit to you, Doctor, a little bit about some of the things we do, part of our whole role is that we, you know, we try to give back that childhood to those children. And I think that that's, uh, that's integral. You know, they, they, they start having to deal, you know, with, with certain medical conditions. I'm sure children start suddenly are thrust into some very adult situations that they perhaps are not um, mentally prepared for. And parents are thrust into situations where um, perhaps they, uh, has certain uh, expectations for their child that are now going to be different and how to, you know, how we help as, as an organization, but from a psychological perspective, um, I would say, I would ask the question of, of, of what's one of the best tools or one of the best ways that you help parents and children prepare for these kind of things. For me, I think a strengths-based approach uh, is the most important one for children and youth and with their families, encouraging people to focus on the child's strengths, what they're still able to do, the positives, and to build coping skills, I think, in the situation. So I would say just in principle, you know, I can't speak about each one individually, and there's probably lots of, you know, really neat programs worked out to support children in different situations. But I think always bearing in mind that this is a child with strengths and opportunities and, uh, and I suppose supporting the parents to see those and maybe readjust their goals, particularly if they've something that's life lasting. Um, we are coming to an end shortly. I want to ask about COVID. Can you ask yeah, about COVID? I'd to jump into that actually because COVID is huge, obviously, worldwide pandemic and the toll that it took on just about everybody. I always used to say like, the mission of High Lifeline has been to provide support to children and families affected by serious illness. And during the pandemic, my line was always like, yes, obviously there's different levels of that. Um, but right now, everybody is being impacted by 
serious illness. There's a co- there's COVID going around, and we're all being impacted. You know, whether it's the stay at home measures or kids having to miss all the school. What are some of the things that 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 you guys are seeing? Um, I guess in the general population from from the effects of COVID, and then what are you doing to support it, if there if anything? And what can we do? Even if if there's things that we're not doing, what can what what is it that you would recommend that we can do? Yeah, so I think the effects of COVID we probably still don't know fully. Um, I think you know people are going to build entire careers just researching COVID. I would say and and the impact. But some early things that we've learned is uh, we know kind of developmentally and educationally, um, children and young people have lost out a little bit. So we know very young children are are developmentally a little bit delayed. Uh, relative to older children um, and they're coming into school maybe not quite as well prepared. So I think that there's sort of those kind of broader societal uh, developmental factors that probably needs a, a societal approach, probably need to think about, well, how do we prepare kids for school entry, you know, or how do we help them to catch up developmentally to get used to socialist, socializing with other people and being in groups of people and and um, being with lots of different people as opposed to maybe just a nuclear family. Um, I think the, from a mental health point of view, uh, anxiety was already increasing in child and youth populations, probably across the whole population prior to COVID, but it definitely exacerbated this escalation that we saw in anxiety. And Certainly into our, um, you know, in, in our mental health services, we saw a huge increase in referrals for treatment of anxiety disorders. Or, um, um, we've, we've also seen an increase in attendance at emergency departments with suicidality, even in very young children. And to me, that speaks a little bit to a lack of resilience and poor coping skills and one has to ask the question, and I, I think it probably remains to be seen because the research still needs to be done, but have parents also lost out a little bit during this period in terms of maybe not having, you know, a broad social net that can support them or help them to normalise behaviours or think about um, helping, you know, uh, the development of coping skills? Um, I think the other thing that we know is that children who... Uh, children, youth and adults who were already struggling with their mental health probably did worse over COVID relative to people who didn't have pre-existing conditions. So um, so certain people lost out even more. So the people who are already vulnerable. And the other very surprising thing that happened was a huge increase in eating disorders. And I think that that was probably unexpected, but was experienced wow. globally. So there yeah, there were, there were a lot of referrals with eating disorders sort of just after the first. Do you have any theory as to why? Yeah, I think um, I think we can, again, I can probably only speculate because some of these things probably exist at a societal level. Um, I think anxiety has been increasing over recent decades because of the way we live. <laughs> I think, you know, we live in urbanized settings. We're increasingly socially isolated. Uh, we live a lot in this hybrid world, particularly young people, uh, where they're evaluated every day. 
Um, I think they're more exposed to adverse events that we maybe find harder to monitor. So bullying being one example or exploitation or online abuse. So I think that all of those factors are probably contributing to increased anxiety in children. There's also, you know, again, thinking about things societally, maybe a bit of nihilism among young people these days that they worry about their futures, they worry about climate change. And um, they worry, should they work so hard like their parents did if the world's going to end in 2050, which sounds very nihilistic. And, and actually, you know, what we need is we need resilience, right? Because we're going to have to cope with the impacts of these things over the coming decades. And we need people who are going to be able to help us problem solve these things. And the eating disorder one is interesting. And again, I can probably speculate a little bit, but with eating disorders, I guess a lot of psychiatrists would say, well, you know, Kids were home, they were out of their usual routine. They probably, their parents were possibly busy and distracted trying to work at home. And um, maybe, you know, the the uh, family eating patterns changed. And I, I mean, and I don't think it was a phenomenon that was solely in children and youth. I think it was also in adults. I think the change in, in routine, people were sitting home, probably gaining pounds or afraid of gaining pounds. And uh, I think and anxious. And so we know a lot of eating disorders are about anxiety and about controlling your anxiety. So perhaps that's what contributed to people maybe choosing these more maladaptive ways of coping with their anxiety by controlling their eating, engaging in eating behaviors that are maladaptive. Which makes sense. I mean, they had zero control over anything that was going on at the time. They can control that. So that's what they're going to do. Exactly. I mean, if you think about it, we were all like, there was so much uncertainty. If you think back to March 2020, we had no clue what was going to happen. And that's a Two weeks, two weeks to uh, flatten the curve, I think they said. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's interesting, though, you were saying that the anxiety rates were going up before COVID even. Do you attribute that to uh, on to the online presence of social media and things of that nature? I mean, I think that this is a research area that's still very just beginning, and I'm not sure that we can say with a lot of evidence base. But to me, it does. You know, I think that youth would report that they. Yeah, I mean, lots of youth like social media, right? And they enjoy it, and it's part of how they engage with each other, and. There's a lot of good things come from social media, but I think that there's a lot more potential to be exposed to some maybe adverse experience as well, like bullying or, as I as I mentioned before, um, you know, or I can think of youth particularly because I, I've worked so much with youth with neurodevelopmental disabilities who might maybe more vulnerable. I can think of lots of examples of them being exploited online, for example. It's horrible. Yeah, that it is. is. It horrible. Is. Yeah, it's crazy how a screen, like somebody would never exploit a, a child like that in real life, but a screen might um, allow them to do so. It's it's unreal. Dr. Gallagher, do you have any last words you want to yeah. offer from a psychiatrist point of view of everybody in the world going on with what's going on right now? How to kind of support our children through yeah. that? Um, it's a very broad oh, question, so don't feel. That's a, that's a big question. I mean, I, I think um, I, I think, you know, right now there are lots of parents out there who are concerned about children and their children and young people. And I think that the most important thing is if you're worried or concerned about your children and young people, do reach out and seek advice, you know, whether that's to do with anxiety, mood, 
their eating habits, maybe substance use with older adolescents. Don't sit in a problem. Um, try and reach out and find out where you can get help. And I know that that can be difficult, but even, you know, discuss it with your family doctor um, and, and or, or your pediatrician um, and, and get the advice that you need. So I would, that would be the first thing. And I think as well, if, if parents themselves are struggling with their own mental health, uh, they should also reach out and seek help for that. It's not, it's a very common phenomenon. We all struggle with our mental health. It's part of being alive. Um, and just, you know, get help and support if, if you need it. And, uh, it's not, you know, it's not a sign of weakness. It's not, and uh, nobody's going to question you about it. Funny how people see that as different, you know, like if they had, <laughs> if you, if you broke your arm, you're not going to try and stay home and figure that out. But for some reason, when people are struggling with anxiety or other psychological illnesses, I think they, they, they're, they're, they're scared or they're afraid to show that weakness. And it's, it's so it's strange and, and, and kudos to you for helping remove that stigma and, you know, and, and starting at such a young age with kids, making sure that that's part of the regular vernacular. People have to understand the connection between mind and, and body. And I think that that's so important. So um, thank you for your work and thank you for everything that you do for the pediatric community in, in general. And, and it's really amazing for us to be able to hear, um, you know, particularly your uh, what the hospital is implementing now across the board and how that's that's going to change. I'm sure for years to come for for many 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 young people. And hopefully, it goes into other hospitals in the area too. Sure, I'm yeah, sure Sikkim is so. a trendsetter. Well, um, thank you. Well, thank you both, and, and congratulations yeah, on all the work that you guys do. I, I think it's really meaningful and really important too. So, you know, giving kids the chance to have normal experiences when they're maybe experiencing something that's very unusual or abnormal like a, a really severe illness so congratulations and keep up the good work thank you doctor have a wonderful day okay. thank you bye. Bye. bye bye thank you dr louise gallagher for speaking with us today we appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule this conversation is an important one as it discusses issues that have just started being spoken about such as the rise of anxiety and mental health issues pre-covid and surprisingly, the increase of eating disorders during COVID amongst the youth. It's so good to hear the innovations that come out of sick kids. Having a mental health strategy in collaboration with different departments in Sick Kids Hospital, where there's a clinical care where every child coming into the hospital has their mental health screened to see if they need help. They call it measurement care. There's a research pillar, an education pillar is being used to educate all staff in the hospital and make them comfortable talking about mental health, a co-creation pillar where they bring the children and advocates of the children into the development of the services as well. And even an advocacy and system pillar, which looks at the broader system and how they can help better that system. These are all very important topics of conversation that we touched on, and there is so much more we could have gone into detail about. Thank you again, Dr. Gallagher, and thank you to the listeners for being with us today. Until next time. Thank you for choosing to listen to On Air Luchai and supporting our cause. Being a nonprofit organization, we rely on the support from our community to help keep our programs running and allow us to continue to service our families while offering incredible experiences such as fun-filled family events, adventure trips, camp, big sibling volunteers, home-cooked meals, respite service, and much more. If you're thinking of making a charitable donation, think of High Lifeline Canada and the children you'll be supporting. You can visit us at highlifelinecanada.org backslash donate to make a difference today. On Air Chai is a High Lifeline Canada project. 
produced by myself, Brian Strasberg, hosted by myself and the executive director of High Lifeline Canada, Mordechai Rothman. Guests are booked by Orly Davis and graphic design is done by Candace Alper. On Air with High is edited by myself and the music is provided by Music Unlimited at pixabay.com. To learn more about High Lifeline and how you can help us, please visit our website at highlifelinecanada.org. Don't forget to subscribe and give us that five-star rating. And of course, share it with all your friends.